Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to gather tonight. And on this rainy evening, we ask that those who are coming, Lord, you would keep them safe on their way here and safe on their way home tonight as well. We thank you for Michael and for the preparation he's done, Lord. We pray that you would uh, be sensitive to your leading tonight, Lord, and that your message would come through him clearly to, to us here, that we would leave uh, tonight with, uh, with something more than what we came with, Lord. We just thank you and praise you and just dedicate this time to you and ask you to take control of this time in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. So if we could start with the reading of the word. Uh, Aaron. And we're looking at Matthew 27. I believe we're starting in verse 4. I believe it is. It's either 3 or 4. I'm trying to... Three. Three, then. I guess it's three. That's right. And we're going to go through verse 25. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying his blood. But they said, What is that to us? See that. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and changed himself. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them in the temple treasury, since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together and put the money on the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And they took the very pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now Yeshua stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him to stay. Are you the king of the Jews? And Yeshua said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was to release for the people anyone, prisoner, whom they wanted. At that time they were, behold, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Yeshua, who was called Christ? But he knew that because of envy they had handed him. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and put Yeshua to death. But the governor said to them, Which of the two of you do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with 
Christ, they all said, crucify him. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas for them, but after having Yeshua scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Thank you. So <clears throat> I wanted to talk again about Matthew and spotlight, per se, a spotlight a specific scripture in Matthew again that we've talked about before or that is probably familiar to you. So one of the one of the key parts of Matthew, if you don't know, is Matthew 16. And specifically I want to look at verses 16 and 17. Because in, in a sense this is kind of the in, in many ways, a lot of commentators and a lot of people who have studied this book, they point to this one verse in Matthew. And it's really relevant in both last week's study and this week's because the constant question, are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah comes up. Are you a king? Right? We see that asked last week by the Sanhedrin. And we see it again asked here tonight by Herod. And what does Matthew 16, 16, and 17 say? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Yeshua answered and said to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And uh, actually the next verse too, what does that say? And I say unto thee, Thou... Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now we've talked about this particular verse before, and if you've been here any length of time, what's, what some people believe actually was said is Ata Mashiach El. Okay. You are the Messiah of Israel. And, and just to let you know, we prefer the word Messiah. So when you see it in your Bible, because we're trying to keep in the Messianic identity here. Messianic identity, so we prefer Messiah. There's nothing wrong with Christ. It's just a, it's just a picture that we prefer saying the Messiah. Yeshua the Messiah instead of Jesus Christ. Trying to keep him in his Jewish dress, Jewish look, in a sense. So these words is, is what people, a lot of people say, Peter is saying. Peter is saying. And what does Yeshua say immediately? Excuse me, Mike. Uh, I'm sorry, what? Atah Mashiach El, you're the Messiah of God. Of God, yeah. Does that make sense or no? No. No? Ben, Ben El, the Son of God. Oh, I, oh. I, I didn't know if it, it, it I, I thought it was the other way, you are the Messiah of God. Oh, 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 okay. 
Is, 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 should there be a bend in there? Or? No, 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 I'm sorry. If, if, I'm sorry. If, if what you're saying is uh, you are the Messiah of God? Yes. Mashiach Adonai, I would say. Okay, Mashiach, you believe it would be more Mashiach Adonai? Yeah. Mashiach El, okay. Yeah, I, uh, we, we are, uh, uh, we're, we're looking to, to uh, construct what took place a couple thousand years ago, so we're, you know, doing the best we can, but, uh, but yeah, I, I would say Mashiach Adonai, okay. Okay. When does it say, when does it say, though, you are the Messiah of God? I mean, when scripture does it have that phrase? Right here in Matthew 16, 16. I don't have that. It's okay. So a lot of people point to this as being the main text. And Yeshua says, Yeshua says, what? It's flesh and blood have not revealed this to you. But who? My Father in heaven. So that. So that, in other words, Messiah, the revelation of Messiah is a spiritual, spiritual truth. And the, and the Word of God tells us spiritual truths are spiritually discerned. In other words, in order to understand things of the Spirit, the Spirit has to be operating in your life in some measure. It's not, a, it's not just something you can say, it's not just words that you can recite, and it becomes, it becomes a truth. But it's the spiritual words that God reveals it to you. God reveals it to you. And then what Yeshua says after that is on my, on my, um, on my congregation, I will build this truth. And he says, the gates of hell. And does anyone remember what that's about? The gates of hell will not stand against it, right? What is that referring to? Anybody know? It's probably referring to the place it was and the one that happened. Well, part of, part of the thing that I think a lot of people miss is that God's kingdom, and part of understanding God's kingdom, is that God's kingdom is operating on a different level than what we would expect. God's kingdom is on the offensive here. And it's kind of this idea that everyone understands what it means when one kingdom invades another kingdom, right? We see that throughout Scripture. You know, Syria came up and, and fought against Israel. Or Egypt came up and fought against Judah. All these different, you can look over and over. We understand that. But God's kingdom is on the offensive here. And he's saying that the gates of hell aren't going to stand against it. And that's a real important truth that God's kingdom is always on the offensive here. When, it, when you start to declare who God is. When you start to show forth whom the Messiah is. And that's kind of a lot of what we've been talking about. How throughout Matthew there's an ongoing struggle, an ongoing understanding, an ongoing battle for who has the authority. Who's going who's gonna to stand at the end of the day? Who's going to show to be in charge here, in a sense? Right? That's a common theme we see throughout Matthew's Gospel over and over again. And so I want you to understand that. that This is kind of more one of the biggest points that Matthew 
is that God's kingdom was to always be on the offensive. And it kind of doesn't look like that today as we read our text, does it? It doesn't look like God's kingdom is on the offensive at all. We see Yeshua being on trial. We see Judas hanging himself. And last week we saw a trial again. And some of the, just to clarify, some of the things we were talking about last week, to just kind of uh, reiterate them again. We saw Yeshua's trial. And does everyone remember where we said it took place? In the house of Caiaphas. Why was that problematic? It was illegal. Where should trials be taking place? In the temple. In the temple. And what time of day was it? Nighttime. Not everybody would have been involved, right? In a sense, there's a big portion of Israel that's probably absent. And we talk about this word council, and we talked about Sanhedrin. Does anyone remember what we said about Sanhedrin? The Sanhedrin could refer to two different things. We talked about this last week. That it could be the Supreme Court, like the Supreme Court of Israel. Or it could be a lower court. Like a local court sometimes, like the what we call in Hebrew the Bet Din. Which was what people would go to when they needed to get an understanding of Scripture or they might go to if they had a problem. And they'd say, we want you to rule between our brothers here. Our brothers agree that we want to have a ruling here on what you want to do in this matter of, of, of disagreement maybe. And so we see here that this group is probably the lack. This is probably not the full Supreme Court of Israel. Probably not the Supreme Court because it's at nighttime and they're meeting in somebody's house. So we see that Yeshua made a, a definite response when they wanted to know if he was Messiah. Does anybody remember what he said? Another one of his responses, and I, I drew attention to specifically the response from Luke, because he said, if I ask you, you won't answer me. And if I say something to you, you won't believe me. And so it was a two-pronged attack, almost saying, you won't let me dialogue with you, and even if I tell you the truth, you're not going to believe what I say. And I think it was a very masterful answer because it kind of established there were two types of thinking. Sometimes people learn by the asking of questions over and over again. You know, they, that's how you find things out. But there's also that dialogue that Jewish people had of questions back and forth. One question for another question and so on. And he's saying, you won't let me ask. And even if I tell you the truth, you're not going to say. And then he makes the, the statement, two statements from the Tanakh that we talked about in Psalm 110 and Daniel chapter 7, that, that they would see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Then we talked specifically about Peter's denial. And I want to kind of pick up there a little bit in our study 
Because what Peter said was very relevant in how that happened. When we talked specifically about what it meant when the cock crowed. Does anybody remember? The cock crowing? What did that mean? Was it an actual rooster maybe? Or the third watch. It's synonymous with the third watch in the night. That when the third watch was made, they would make some kind of announcement, either with a, a blowing up signal, some kind of trumpet sounding, or a lighting of a fire, so that they knew it was time to come out and switch the guard. It was a, a military term, actually, in which they decided this was the time that the watch needed to be changed. And we also talked about how that Peter, specifically, Yeshua looked at Peter, that he could see Peter when he denied him. And it was something that, it's kind of a mystery to us because we don't have a lot of information. But it says in Luke that the Lord turned and looked at Peter right after he denied him. Almost in a way of reminding him of what had happened. And I don't think it was to shame Peter. I think it was to say, I, I'm here for you still. Even in the midst that you messed up, I'm here for you. I know you've messed up. I know you've blown it. And I really think Peter was scared. Because he could probably see what was happening to Yeshua. And fear is a powerful thing. When people see what's going on around them, it's easy for them to turn. I mean, it's easy for us to say, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have done that. But you, really, it's, it's, it's you know, scary to see someone get beaten up in a violent way and to be exposed to that. And so I think that's kind of why Peter makes that decision. It says that afterward, he really reflected on what Yeshua said. And it really hit him differently. And then there was a question asked. Is that why Yeshua came back and said, well, um, you know, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs if you love me? Remember that? Right. And I really pondered that this week. And I really thought the difference with Peter, the difference part of what the Lord was trying to get him to do was to follow him. And the word there is mentioned twice where he tells Peter, Follow me. What, it, what difference does it make what happens to John? Follow me. You know? And that's kind of what he wanted Peter to do. I really think that's more the crux of it. It's not that the feeding of the sheep isn't important. It's not whether or not Peter loved the Messiah. But I really think Yeshua was saying, you're going fishing again and you need to stop doing that. You need to follow me and do what I've called you to do. And it's really important, sometimes people have a calling on their life that they need to fulfill what God's called them to do. And a lot of times, in the midst of struggle, we sometimes forget, what was that assignment the Lord gave me? And it's really important that I think the Lord wants us to follow Him no matter what's going on, no matter what's happening in our life, no matter what kind of struggles we have. And there will be times where we'll get down and there will be times where we'll struggle and have these, these questions of faith. But I think for the Lord and Peter, he wanted Peter to follow him. And in John chapter 21, he says it twice. Verse 20 and verse 23, follow me, Peter. I want you to just keep following me. And I want you to see where I'm going and what I'm doing. It's interesting, Michael, that uh, what you're saying is that the Lord isn't emphasizing for Peter the job that he had for him, but he's emphasizing the fact that uh, 
Peter needs to strengthen his relationship with him. Well, because I, it is because I think I think for a lot of times we get consumed in our identity of what we're doing, what we have to do, and we for sometimes forget who we are in the Lord, and that the Lord loves us, and we need to we need to remember where we get our strength. And where we, we get our um, ability to even do things for the Lord. And sometimes we're so busy doing, doing, that we can at times forget. And it's not that doing isn't important. It's not that the Lord didn't want him to feed the sheep. I think that is very important, to feed the sheep. But he wanted Peter to first start by learning to follow him, I think. And I really think that's kind of, in, in the contrast, as we look at these two individuals, these two people that specifically... Peter, who, who denied the Lord and really, really in a sense, struggled in this area. And then we see contrasted immediately with Judas and what Judas was going through. And a lot of people sometimes say, why, why was Judas, you know, it's, it's kind of a mystery. Why was Judas condemned? Why was there no hope for Judas? Why was there no hope at all for this this man who made these choices. And I know it's something a lot of people struggle with. How can one person truly be condemned? And he even understands he's condemned. And I wanted to look at just who is Judas tonight? Because I think we know, we know, you know, who do we know Judas to be? A thief. A thief, okay. What else do we know about this Judas? Okay, a liar. What else do you mean? He's manipulative. Okay, we see that he's manipulative. I mean, he wants Jesus to do what he wants, to fulfill what he wants, instead of him submitting to Jesus. Okay. What else do we know about it? He was one of the twelve that were sent out to tell the towns of Jesus where Yeshua was headed towards. He's one of the twelve. That's a big one. And what did one of the twelve have power to do? Cast out devils. And, and Yeshua spent all night in prayer before he selected these guys, including Judas. And even later on we see in John 6, he says, but one of you has a demon. And I, I don't want to speculate what that looked like or where the demon was, was he in Judas? Was he oppressing? Was because there's all you know you can get into the whole adjectives of that. I mean the ad, the adverbs of it. Was he on him? Was or prepositions? I guess I'm trying to say uh, prepositions. Was he on him? Was he in him? Was he oppressing? You know I don't know what that looks like, but I'm just saying Yeshua says he had a demon. He had a demon, and it's interesting not only what these things we know because a lot of these things we know from the New Testament, right? But I wanted to look at what the Tanakh has to say about Judas. Because the Tanakh, we, we see Yeshua making reference to what we know about Judas from the Tanakh. And I think that's very eye-opening when we look at Judas, when we look at him. And, and, and one of the first scriptures that, that I was led to was this passage in John. In John chapter 12, or 13, John chapter 13. And verses 18 through 21. John chapter 13, verses 18 through 21. And, and while someone's turning there, I'll set the context. The context is the Last Supper. 
And Yeshua has just given the disciples an example, right? Does anyone remember what example that was? He washed their feet. And do you notice that Judas is still there? He even washed Judas's feet. That's pretty, that's pretty incredible to think he's even going to wash this guy's feet and later on he'll betray him. And he even knows that Judas is going to betray him. But let's read this John 13, 18 through 21. Don't be shy, anyone who has. I'm not talking to all of you. I know which ones I have chosen, but the words of the Tanakh must be fulfilled that say, the one eating my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you may believe that I am. Yes, indeed, I tell you that a person who receives someone I send receives me, and that anyone who receives me receives the one who sent me. That's a great promise in Scripture, and I hope that's one everyone knows very well. If the Lord sends you, it's almost that when people receive you, they receive the Lord. And it's the same thing. Those that receive a prophet's message will also receive the same thing. It's they, they'll receive you because you speak as a prophet for the Lord. And, and that's simply just to declare the word of God. It's not about like, I know what's going to happen tomorrow or something like that. And so we see here in this passage, Yeshua is commiserating over what's going to happen. And he makes a quotation. He who sits at the table with me will lift up, be lifted up against me. And so let's look at that. Psalm 41. Psalm 41 verse 6. Because this is speaking, Yeshua is saying this is speaking of Judas. Right? And so it's important to know not just what we know about him, but what does the Tanakh say about Judas? Psalm 41 verse 6. Rachel? Maybe it's uh, 41.9. I'm sorry. 41.9. Okay. Yea, my unfamiliar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. And I started to dig into the Hebrew here, and I thought the word for friend was quite interesting. And I, I won't try to pronounce it, but it comes from the word shalom, it looks like. It comes from the word shalom. I'm not sure if that's correct or not. Yeah. Yes. How do you pronounce that? Is it shalom? Or shlomi. Shlomi? Yes. <clears throat> this is the word here for friend. Ish shlomi. Ish shlomi. So the ish, meaning the man or the, the man of peace. My peace is it? Of my peace, the man of my peace, Yes. And this is the word here that's translated friend. And here, the word has lifted up was interesting too. 
And it looks like that's from the word gadol. But it's, I think it's gadol. Is that right? Yigdil. I don't know if that's right, but I'm yeah. stretching it here. Yeah, no. So, but part of the pr- principle here, when you lift, when you lift up your heel, it's that you make a confident determination to do this. And Yeshua, I mean, Judas was making a confident expectation of that he was going to lift up his heel, kind of like a, it's like a military uh, approach of how you approach somebody that he's going to. Come at him. He's going to come at him. So when we look at not only this passage, but what it says, because in Acts chapter 1, we read also about the death of Judas, and it says that he fell, and it says that Peter says that this was to fulfill Scripture, right? Acts chapter 1, that, that Judas, and, and I thought it was really interesting when we dug into Psalm 69. Let's look at some. We looked at that briefly a couple of weeks ago, because we talked about part of part of the reason Messiah is going through this is to fulfill Scripture. Okay, Messiah had to be betrayed according to the Scriptures, and over again in in the in the Garden, when Yeshua was in the Garden, he said, "This is done so that it would fulfill the Scriptures." And Psalm 69 is one of the scriptures it points to. And I wanted to look at what it said about Judas in Psalm 69. And specifically verses 25 through 28. 25 through 28. Grace. You don't have a Bible? That's okay. She can read. Whoever's got it. May their place be deserted, that there be no one to dwell in their tents. For they persecute those you wound and talk about the pain of those you hurt. Charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. Some pretty, some pretty, that's, that's fine. I think what you read, was it verse, to verse 29? Verse 28, 29 says, I am in pain and distressed, distress. Uh, may your salvation, O oh God, protect me. So we see we see co- constant uh, pain and suffering in this psalm. Because we were talking about this before, and Rabbi Haim was talking to us how they hated him without a cause. Okay? And we talked about how Rabbi Haim actually shared that this was something that destroyed the temple. Their very hatred with for no reason that they hated Yeshua and it destroyed eventually. Even the rabbis looked at it and said, even this hating without a cause was the reason we see that the temple was destroyed. And in this portion, what I want to draw your attention to is the word persecute. Does everyone know what persecute here means? What does it mean when you persecute someone? Well, in a natural sense, it can simply mean just to chase them. Or pursue them, kind of. Remember Paul persecuted the church? He was chasing and pursuing them, right? 
Yeah, you don't leave them alone. You don't leave them alone, and you're you're pursuing them, yeah, with the intent to do some kind of harm. But look at who's being chased here. Who's being chased? One that's hurt or smitten. One that God has wounded. One that's wounded. Now you know what that reminded me right away? That kind of reminded me of the spirit of Amalek back in the Torah, where God says Amalek came against who? Does anyone remember? Any of our good Torah people? Who did Amalek come out against? The weak. The weak. Those that were already struggling. And he came at the rear and he just took them. And I think that's what the Lord is pointing to here in this psalm. Is this person is going after the weak. He's going after the ones that are already wounded and hurting. And the Lord, I think the Lord just abhors that completely. When someone would pursue, someone would want to harm someone that's already hurt already. What did Yeshua say? I I have not come to to break a bruised reed, or to what? Extinguish the smoldering wick. In other words, if if the you know the smoldering wick it's already going out, the bruised reed it's already kind of falling over, and and he's saying I'm not going to go after these things. But here we have the exact opposite of that. We have someone who's pursuing. Someone who's already hurt, who's already wounded. And this is kind of what we see characterized by who Judas was. And we see the word here, righteous, used twice in this passage. In verse 27 and verse 28, the righteous, the righteous. So the Lord looks at, the Lord looks at this situation and he understands. That's why it's such a harsh judgment on Judas. Such a harsh judgment of what's to come. And I don't know if Judas knows these scriptures. It's not really clear because he doesn't quote them. He doesn't quote them. But we do see what he does quote. And it's very vivid in Greek. It's not some, I think Aaron read it, the innocent man in his version. But it's actually in Greek, the innocent blood. It was innocent blood. Does anybody know what the Lord has to say about innocent blood? About the shedding of innocent blood? Their blood will be required. Their blood will be required? Remember in Proverbs, it even tells us it's one of the seven things the Lord hates. Feet that rust to shed innocent blood. And a lot of, I don't know if it's because Judas now knows that, you know, maybe Judas thought Yeshua's going to come before the Sanhedrin and they're going to judge him. But when they see that the Sanhedrin takes him to Pilate, maybe that's the thing that, you know, really pushes him over the edge and says, you know, I just thought I was turning over this guy to, to the Jewish authorities. I didn't know they were going to put him to death. Because now he's gone to Pilate's place. And I don't remember if you remember what I shared last week, but Pilate's, Pilate's area, in some places it says his palace, or the fortified area, or the praetorium, depending on how it's rendered. But really, 
This is like the hall of judgment that Yeshua is going to. The hall of judgment. And how do you think the Jews fake uh, how do you think the Jews fared in the hall of judgment of the Romans? Maybe that was the thing. Maybe that was the very thing that finally pushes him over the edge. Judas is pushed over the edge, and and therefore he throws the money down and, and goes out and hangs himself. I don't know. There's, there's a lot to... We don't know all the motives that are involved, but we know. And it's interesting because Judas, it says, felt remorse. And in, in the King James, I think it even says he repented. In, I believe it's Luke 22. No, that's in. Uh, no, this portion of Judas is, is only mentioned here. I believe it's in uh, verse 4 or verse 5. Of John? Of, of Matthew. Back to Matthew 27. We are supposed to be studying Matthew, but it's easy to sometimes get so focused on what the other Gospels have to say because they're very, very interesting. Verse 3. Verse three. Yeah. He regretted or repented. He regretted. And the word here in Greek, I am not going to try to pronounce it. Metamelowai. 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 Okay. I'm guessing that's how it's spelled. Yes. And it means to, to care what happened after. And it may even have remorse or regret involved. And it's interesting when you contrast Judas with Peter. Because the word for what Peter took, did, he actually did repentance. Or shuva. And the word that it actually uses in the King James, which was interesting, he's converted. That it says he was, he was converted almost... He was transformed by what took place when he repented. And Yeshua said that ahead of the fact. Yeshua is not saying this after Peter's dying. He's saying, At, when you do this, when you deny me, you're, when, you, when you comes back around again, this is Luke 23, 31 and 32, just for those who are wanting. He said, you will not lose your faith. You will be strengthened. You will... You will be able to strengthen your brothers and you will repent. You will turn around and you will be converted is what it says in the King James. And it's that idea that he's transformed his life. He's transformed his life. And to finish up this portion of the story on Judas, we see that the the Kohanim or the chief priests now are concerned with well goodness, we don't want to put money that was blood money back in our money. So they decide to buy a field, and, and it says, and thus was it said, verses 9 and 10, this is just as Jeremiah said it would be, according to the scriptures. And I thought this was really interesting, because I didn't, I looked at the scripture in Jeremiah, and it didn't seem to fit. It didn't seem to fit what it was saying here. And part of the picture, I think, here is, Jeremiah's thinking, or Matthew who's writing this gospel, is thinking of several scriptures. Several scriptures about Jeremiah. 
several scriptures, especially Jeremiah 18, where Jeremiah goes to the potter. And he talks about what kind of judgment will happen on Israel. And I think he's speaking about Jeremiah 19, how Jeremiah is to buy said pot and break it in front of everyone so that they will see this as an example of, of what happens to the potter. And then we see specifically the area of Jeremiah 32, how the Lord appointed Jeremiah to buy a certain field. And it was kind of crazy why he bought that field and how he told him to buy this field because he said, this field, this field I want you to buy even though it looks like everything bad is going to happen here. I want you to buy this field anyway. And it was really a step of Jeremiah's faith to really buy this field. And so there's a lot of scriptures that we see from Zechariah 11, and that's the one that's not in your notes, Zechariah 11, 12, and 13, where Zechariah was, was caring for the sheep, and he was paid the 30 pieces of silver. So I don't know what exactly how that all fits together. It's, it's very interesting. I, I, if anything, I have more questions. I have more questions about this passage that Matthew's talking about. And it may just be trying to show us a broad picture of several scriptures. That's the only conclusion I could really come to after looking at that. And so, I, like I said, the only one that wasn't included was Zechariah 11. For some reason, that one got left out of your notes. So then we come to the judgment before Pilate. And it's really interesting that this judgment before Pilate is spoken of in Scripture, but not in the Gospels. I thought it was interesting that Paul wanted to tell Timothy that this was a powerful testimony. And I'd like someone to read that. 1 Timothy chapter 6, and verse 13 through 15. Because I really liked how Paul put this testimony that would come forth. Messiah. And I think it really sets the stage of how we look at this passage. If we see this passage as what Yeshua is doing is a testimony. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13. Paul's instructing a young man, Timothy, on how to be a pastor. And here's some of the instruction he gives him. Verses 13 through 15. David, or... I charge you before God, who gives life to all things, the Messiah Yeshua, who made his good confession before Pontius Pilate, <clears throat> to obey this command without fault or failure until the appearing of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, whose appearing, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, will reveal at the right time. So what he's pointing to here is that this testimony that Yeshua makes before Pilate is an important testimony that you should take hold of with both hands and both feet. And it's something that you'll learn to walk in and to understand. And part of the picture that, I, that, that brought me back to was Hebrews chapter 5. Was the Messiah, through suffering, learned what obedience was. It's a powerful scripture in Hebrews chapter 5 that... Obedience is sometimes learned by the things we suffer. And it's very important that what Yeshua says and how he reacts here. Because we see in Matthew's Gospel 
There's very little that is said. Very little that is said to Pilate. Very little that we know that is said. All he seems to say is, the words are yours, or you said this. But there's more to this, to this idea. And we have to remember that as Yeshua is coming forth at this point to be the Passover lamb, that part of what we're seeing is an examination. Because when the lamb before it was slaughtered, we knew it had to be examined for any defect, for any blemish. And that's part of what Yeshua goes through here when he's before Pilate, when he's before the Sanhedrin. It's that same idea that I'm looking to see if this lamb makes it for the... And whether they knew it or not, this is here as a testimony for us that Yeshua was the spotless lamb. He was to be that spotless lamb. And I think that's why we see this examination take place before Pilate. It's really important, it, it, kind of getting the, the piece of that, and understanding that this just wasn't happening by happenstance, but there was a reason why it had to happen. There's a reason why this all happened according to the scriptures. And remember, when we look back at John's gospel, it was kind of interesting, because it said at the end of last week, we talked about it, the Jews wouldn't even go into the hall of judgment, right? They didn't want to be defiled by going into the Hall of Judgment. And so, there's this picture that I don't think we get from the other Gospels, that Pilate goes back here and he's having a conversation in the Hall with Yeshua, and then he comes out here and he talks to the chief priests again. And then he goes back and he's talking with Yeshua, and so on and so forth. So there's this constant in and out, in and out, that Pilate's making as he has this conversation with Yeshua and with the chief priests and elders of the people. And it's not, it's not something I think you always remember or have in mind when you look at the other synoptic Gospels. And that's why it's so important to look at the, the entirety of what all the passages say and kind of draw more out, and that's what I've tried to do. And so we see the different accusations. And specifically Luke. Luke lists all the accusations that they brought to Pilate. Let's read them. Luke 23 Verses 2 through 5. Uh, I haven't called on the right. Okay. Luke 23. Let's read verses 2 through 5. The accusations that they brought to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, the king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Yeshua replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priest, and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, 
who was also in Jerusalem at that time. So we see three specific, at least three specific things that he was opposing them, wanting to cause subversion, and told them specifically, don't pay taxes, right? Do we see Yeshua actually doing that? In fact, he almost made it, he made it such a bigger statement of the tax issue because he said it's not about what you have between you and Caesar, but it's really what you're supposed to give to God. It's really what it's about is are you giving to God what's God's? And that was pretty that was a pretty remarkable statement. Did Yeshua claim to be a king? Well, yes, he did, but that's something that we'll get to in just a minute. And then the last thing, he's inciting the people with his teaching. Inciting, trying to get them stirred up and excited about what he's saying. And maybe he did get them stirred up and excited, but it wasn't to the degree they were trying to say. When, which they were trying to say that Yeshua's trying to up, bring upheaval, bring a revolt. And so I think it's important to look at each of these charges. Because Pilate says, I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. And that's in a sense making that, whether he knows it or not, he's saying he's the spotless lamb. He's the spotless lamb. Whether he even knows he's saying it or not. And we see that in the Greek, we have some other interesting things here that come to bear. Specifically, this idea that he, it was his habit or his custom to let someone go. And you don't get that in the sense of the King James per se, because it says it just says want. You know, he's something he wanted. But this was actually something that Herod would do. He wanted to let Yeshua go. He wanted to let someone go even during this time. And we see what does it say about Barabbas, that he was a notorious guy. Everybody knew who this guy was. He was a skunk. And they wanted they wanted to ask for him instead. And we see that Mark makes it very clear the inciting. Who's doing the inciting? It's actually the chief priest. And it's interesting, the same word here in Luke is actually found in Mark, where it says the chief priests began to incite the crowd. They began to start stirring up the crowd. And I always question, where does this crowd come from? I didn't know that, that, that Herod was giving a whole audience to a big crowd like we sometimes see in the Passion Place. You know, we see like millions and millions of people that he's, you know, addressing, but it doesn't seem that that's here the case. Because remember, he's going in and coming out and back and forth. And he's just addressing a select group of people. And at some, at some point, I don't know where they just became the mob and the crowd, but this is what we're sometimes looked at. And my biggest question is, where were some of the righteous people of Israel that would have stood up for this? What were some of those righteous people that wouldn't have put up with this kind of thought? So to kind of conclude tonight, what is the testimony? What did Yeshua finally tell Pilate? That Pilate began to really think about this guy. Really began to wonder. Because even he comes out and he says, look at Yeshua. Look at the man. You know, they dress him up and they... They parade him out there and he says, look, the man. We see this in John chapter 19. But it's interesting, before they dress him up, Yeshua makes a clear statement to Pilate here. And I wanted to read it from John 18. This is really an important passage of scripture. In John chapter 18, 
specifically verses 34 to 38. Because we need to know what the testimony was, right? If Paul's going to make this charge to Timothy, follow this testimony, the good testimony that Yeshua had before Pilate. What is this testimony then? Maurice, would you read it for us? John 18, 34 to 38. John 18, 34 to 38. 18. 18, 34 to 38. Are you saying this on your own? Yeshua answered... What did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and ruling colony handed you over to me. What have you done? Yeshua answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would be handed over to Judean leaders. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. So Pilate said to him, Are you a king then? Yeshua answered, you say that I am a king. For this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world, so that I might testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And after he said this, he went out again to the Judean leaders. And, said to them, and so there's that in and out again. Notice he was having a conversation and he comes back out. And Yeshua makes it very clear about his kingdom. His kingdom doesn't come about through what? Through swords and spears and fighting, right? It's not a physical kingdom where kingdom invades kingdom. But yet we, we, we talked about Matthew 16 earlier. We said Yeshua's kingdom is on the offense, right? Constantly supposedly being on the offense. And there's a big piece of that which she read in, in that passage where he said, it's those who hear the truth those who hear the truth and embrace the truth. And that's such an important value of what Yeshua is trying to picture here with Pilate. This is the testimony that he has before Pilate. My kingdom doesn't come through force, but it comes through whether or not you believe the truth. You know, there's such a battle for what you believe. Do you believe the true things that God says? Or do we believe the lies? And sometimes we believe both, right? And that's kind of messed up too, because you can't really believe both. But there's definitely a battle here for what you believe. And Yeshua is very clear, because Herod's a man of force. He knows how to get it done. He knows how to bring about violence. He knows how to char order, give orders in a military sense and get things done. And yet Yeshua says to him, my kingdom doesn't happen like that. And Pilate understands it. That's why he doesn't feel threatened anymore by Yeshua. He's willing to let him go. He's willing to not be, in a sense, a part of what takes place. And so I, I want to challenge this whole idea once again. Because we see, specifically, Aaron read to us at the beginning, His blood be on us and our own heads. And so many times we've seen that said about the Jews that the Jews are now to suffer forever, that, that the blood of Messiah is to be on their children forever and ever. 
And it's really not a fair statement because it's only a, a, a small group that's making this point. It's only a small group wanting to push the thing. And they even say something even, even more scandalous in John 19.15. Let's close with that. John 19.15. Because I know no, no self-respecting Jew of the first century would ever say these words. Rabbi Han, John 19.15. Okay. shouted, taking him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar. The chief priests answered. Mm. That's a very scandalous thing to say. Yeah, the chief priests. We have no king but Caesar. It's hypocritical among other things. Among other things, absolutely. They were so... The priest was supposed to do what? He was supposed to represent the Lord. He was the one that drew near for the people. But yet, we have no king but Caesar. This is a chief priest. That's some pretty powerful words there. So I don't really think all of Israel is involved at this point. Because I don't see a self-respecting Jew, a devout Jew, saying that. And I really question at, at, at times where we sometimes look at the quote-unquote mob or the crowd. And even the Torah teaches, don't follow a crowd, don't follow a mob, right? Because they're going to do evil, especially when they're set on doing evil. Make sure you're not a part of that. And so that's kind of where things end at this point. Next week we'll look at the, the torture and the crucifixion and some of the statements, and we'll look to finish up this last section before we talk about the burial and the resurrection. But I hope this has been eye-opening and enlightening for you to understand who Judas was and to understand specifically the testimony. Because God's kingdom isn't a physical kingdom. It's about learning His truth. Grace, would you close us in prayer tonight?